official podcast of Ghostlight Players of Metro West. Hello and welcome, dear listener, to episode four, yes. four of Thank You Places. Hooray! Which is the third installment in our body series. The body. I don't like that. Please cut that, Jacob. Oh, I'm so uncomfortable. We don't need to do ASMR on this podcast. <laughs> we need to do ASMR as the podcast. Mm-mm. This week, the ASMR episode. The ASMR episode. We are talking about talking. Yes, we we do that with with our mouths and everything. This week, we are talking about talking with Roger Alex Godreau. Yes. 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 That's uh, true. Specifically, talking about talking about and talking in Hamlet. Yes. And breathing. And breathing. With us for the intro part is Brent. Hello, I am Brent Leibowitz, um, and I am part playing the part of Player 4 slash Osric. Who is my favorite character in Hamlet. He's kind of the best. I don't like him much. Yeah. Well, that's because he's a bad person. Yeah. Which is I, why he's uh, the best. I like him because in... The original script, Osric just appears in Act 5, and his only function is to be a jerk to Hamlet. With a hat. With a hat. I like the hat better. Me too. Yeah. The hat's cool. I hope I get the hat in this production. I have insider information that <gasps> you do. Oh, yeah. The hat is back, baby. So, yeah, in, in, in re-talking the... Talking the talks, as they say. Talking section. <laughs> Talking the talks, fallingly on your mouth. I would say the actual quote, but I know that we opened the interview with that quote. That's very true. Brent, what, um, what do you have a, one of my famous hot takes that I keep asking people for about this topic in general? Sure. Talk it. All right. So, yeah, sure. About talking? Yep. So... Talking about talking, there's there's very much a sense of I guess meta ness about it. Yep. <laughs> I like that our talking episode is mostly just awkward silences in the intro. <laughs> just as a point of clarification, in this episode we mentioned Dolph in a conversation about cutting the script of Hamlet for this production. Dolph Paulson is a personal friend of the company and a previous actor who. I, Jacob, and Kat have worked with. He assisted in cutting down the script for this version, keeping intact the verse and sense. Do we have any more ado? Uh, I do not have more ado. Do you? I don't think I do. On to something new. Without further ado. And today we are joined by... Roger Alex Godrow. And who... Who are you, Roger? I am some random scrub that, like, hangs out and follows, stalks the director uh, of this small company. So, also known as her husband. Yeah, yeah, the husband part's important. This isn't, (laughs) like, some weird felony thing. This is a... It's a very normal felony thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm Kat's husband. have been involved in community theater in a number of different places and groups and so on and have been an ardent member slash supporter of Ghostlight since the beginning. Do you have any other sort of 
tenuous connection to this sort of Edinburgh trip uh, production of Hamlet. What are your bona fides? I mean, apart from like helping sort out logistics and and posting on the interwebs and things like that, yes. So I'm <laughs> playing player one, so the lead player of the the troupe, uh, sort of within the troupe. You know, people who are familiar with Hamlet will know the group of players, the the tragedians, the best men, right? As Polonius says. So I play the lead player, and in our production, our players have kind of a bigger hand in things than most do, and so I play several roles. I play the ghost of Hamlet's father, I play the lead player, I play the player king, and inject ominous presence and occasional dialogue in other places. Good. So uh, we've, we've brought you in today on this uh, episode of the podcast to talk about hairstyling tips. Is yeah, that... yeah, exactly right. Good. This is, this is finishing up our body series, is it not? Yes. I can't riff on this anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> are, 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 we, are we officially out of the, the body? We are not out of the body. We've brought you in, Roger, to talk about something which I think it's safe to say you are fairly nerdy about. About uh, delivering the, the words, creating the voice of your character and... Um... Speaking the speech, as it were, trippingly on the tongue. Indeed. Is and that... not mouthing it as, as what players are wont to do. I don't know the rest of the line. That's, That's uh, like Roger's line or something. It's a famous Kid Cudi song. Yes. Yes. So, Roger, you, you were involved in the in the original production of, of this Hamlet, not the original production of Hamlet, obviously. Yes. How how has, has it changed in, in terms of, of language and speaking the speech, or has it changed at all? It has changed. It has become much more concise. You know, there are, for example, the ghost's monologue is shorter than it was before. I honestly don't know by how much, but it's... About 12 minutes. <laughs> but it maintains the message uh, without losing really anything. I think some parts of it are rearranged order-wise, but it's still got the core message to Hamlet from you know the ghost of his father about what his uncle has done and, and what Hamlet should do about it. And the other two places where we have soliloquies the players doing you know the tragedy of, of Pyrrhus and Priam I think is almost unchanged it feels exactly the same uh, but then subsequently the mouse trap the play within the play is likewise a little bit more concise I think it was an interesting challenge to to Kat and Dolph I think is Dolph, the guy yes. who helped her to recast or recut the play in a way that preserves the story and tells it in half the time as usual uh, I also find it really interesting that some monologues have been totally relocated. Uh, like things from Act 3 now happen in Act 1 because they happen to hook on to something that plays out well and sets the stage. So that I find really interesting too. In this role, as you've alluded to, as well as other roles that Ghostlight familiars would have seen you play, you wear a lot of literal and figurative hats. Mm -hmm. You're sort of multiple people within one, sort of gives you an area to play as far as sort of shaping those different people and how alike and dissimilar they are. How much did you play with those differences in terms of voice, both actually making it in the way you pronounce the words? Um, and was there anything that you tried, either in the original run or this run, that did not work? Well, at this point in this rehearsal process, you know, because I, I was traveling for work last week, so I haven't had as much time out on the floor kind of with it. I 
there, there are, to my knowledge, there are at least two kinds of actors, right? They're cerebral uh, and sort of intuitive. There are those who think everything through and like play and, oh, I'm going to speak this way and move this way and so on. And then they go out and they do that. And then they reflect on, on what happened and change. And there are those like me, intuitive, who just kind of go out there and try some stuff and see what ha see what sticks. And so I'm the la that I, I sort of take that approach. So I need to like get out and be on the floor and be in the skin of the character and try some things. So I have some thoughts about like the ghost in the first you know, last summer when we did it the ghost came out and was very disconnected initially in that scene with hamlet and like barely there and barely aware and as i talked with hamlet and things got i got closer and closer to the meat of the story i got more present and more angry and it sort of built up in an earlier uh, rehearsal i decided to take a different tact because in this approach the players are more actively manipulating things and each of us has a mission and we want to outdo the other players so i was thinking well if i'm in this scene as the player and you know as you mentioned earlier with wearing multiple hats one fun part about this is wearing multiple hats simultaneously being the character that the player is portraying and the player simultaneously trying to convince hamlet to do something on behalf of my mission, I thought, well, let me take a more direct approach. Let me like be pushing on him right away, right out of the gate, instead of doing that ethereal thing. And it totally fell flat. I hated it. It felt bad. It was awful. So fortunately, it was only rehearsal uh, right. and not on stage, and that's why we rehearse. You, you said you're you're an intuitive actor. You you sort of go out and you you do it without really thinking about it. So I I would kind of I'm questioning. Not that sounds that sounds uh, less inquisitive and more interrogative. What's what's sort of your relationship with the text? Um, do you sort of go in with a it, the most full knowledge of it you can get, or do you kind of feel around with it and then find where it sits on the text? So the I think both. Right. So one of the things I love about our Shakespeare process is the textual analysis. Right. That we do. We you know when we first did this play, we spent the first two weeks just sitting down and dissecting the words and breaking down the scenes and what am I saying in this moment and what does this beat mean and how does this change my connection to the other character in the scene and that kind of stuff. And as you know, we all understand, when, you know, when the actor understands what they're saying, you know, understands the meaning behind the words, it usually doesn't matter if the audience doesn't quite follow the Shakespearean language, right? It's about communicating the intent. And so I really enjoy that process of kind of getting to what is the textual meaning? Because that's your foundation. And as we, you know, one of the beautiful things about Shakespeare is there's so much ambiguity around that beautiful prose that you can take the same line and deliver it six different ways and have six different meanings and that's why there are so many interpretations of so many of his shows. So I'll start from that foundation, that textual analysis and have kind of a core understanding of what's going on and what I'm saying and then when I get out on the floor I have thought a little bit about kind of what my character is feeling and how I'm how I'm approaching the scene and what I want out of it because you've got to have that understanding but then it's how does the interaction with the other people on the stage affect my, my, my portrayal? How does something someone else does trigger a new reaction for me? Maybe I accidentally speak with a different cadence and discover the possibility of a new intent in a line I thought I understood completely. And so it's, it's really a combination of the two where I start 
from a certain understanding and then I evolve it and refine it as we go. I definitely thought you were going to say because there's so much text <laughs> instead of ambiguity. Which is true. It's true. There is also a great deal of text, right? Yeah. But there's no stage directions. There's no, nothing. A lot of, some, well, I won't say a lot, some modern playwrights that I have read seem to include more stage direction than actual dialogue and, you know, volumes of how the actor should deliver the line. And that's not the playwright's job, in, in my opinion, right? That's where the, that's where the actor, that's why you have an actor, because they get to bring their own interpretation of the text to the stage. And I'm glad that you mentioned Cadence. Because, just as a very brief primer for people who aren't Shakespeare nerds, uh, most of Shakespeare's text is in verse. Um, it's very much written in a poetic form, very often ten syllables per line with alternating stresses. Um, also known as iambic vocabulary. I'll, yes. Fancy vocabulary words. <laughs> How, if at all, do you... Well, I guess I have, I have a two-part question. How does that play into how you think about the lines and do you ever uh how you think about them and how you feel them um musically and emotionally right the so you know some of shakespeare's verse is higher than other right so we know there are times when he goes into rhyming couplets and uses very ornate language and there are places where it's lots of common simple words but they're arranged in the cadence and so the verse there uh, sort of helps you know signify important or less important moments right so you sort of feel your way through those and you can add or subtract from that but the cadence itself in terms of the the flow of the iambic pentameter you know the cases where you have this you know da 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 you know there are i've seen shows where that's overly pronounced and it's very sing-songy and you sort of lose that uh, you lose the sense that there's normal speech going on and i hate that so i prefer you know kind of like you know the punctuation ends in the middle of the line right there's no punctuation at the end of the line so you just carry through like you're speaking normally right so the uh so i guess in, in that respect sort of the so how i sort of feel about it it there is a, there is a music there, right? And this isn't quite what you asked, but I'll mention it anyway. So the That's all right. cadence, kind of the poetry of it, for me makes it easier to memorize the language because sort of just free speech, you know, it's there's a you know you've got to follow the idea, right? And since we're trying, you know, in order to you got to connect your lines together and, and remember the through the through line to make it easier to remember. But something about the verse makes it easier to memorize. Probably you know, coming out of centuries of oral tradition. We, you know, our brains are wired to to better remember, you know, things that have a cadence and a flow to them. Where I find I sometimes have trouble with that is when the words in an individual line still scan to the correct cadence if you rearrange them. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, that can that can sometimes that that, that can be uh, interesting. But it when the the cadence is also a good signal to how important the moment is. I think I mentioned that. So like. A character that's very noble will speak in poetry like all the time uh, and use you know very ornate language. Whereas a character who's kind of you know base born you know may not speak in verse at all, or you know, may use very simple uh, simple vocabulary. So that sort of helps connect me to the character by sort of understanding, taking a closer look at the language. And when a character departs, 
you know, always speaks in verse and then suddenly breaks it. You know, why did that happen? Or likewise, the other way, never speaks in verse and then suddenly opens into a couplet or you know, into a sonnet. You know, there's clearly something important there. Uh, I'm actually going to follow up with a, with a slightly more technical um, physical question about breath management. You, you mentioned in that last answer that punctuation in the middle of the line, you just you follow the punctuation, you'll carry through the end of the line if it's not there. Which is called enjambment, enjambment. since we're throwing jargon out. Yeah. <laughs> Learn something. Put it on your SAT essays. Um, I don't know how many students actually listen to us, but hey, we'll find out when we get complaints about the SAT. <laughs> so, so there's this this uh, traditional school of thought in in Shakespeare, um, sort of scholarship and performance, where um, the line lengths and that that iambic pentameter falls through with breath management. That 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 sort of ten syllables is it's just about the right length of time for an actor's breath. Um, and, and following that school of thought that you should breathe at the end of every line, where clearly you don't subscribe to that. See, I've heard the term uh, Shakespearean breath, where you have to be able to take a deep enough breath that you can get through like multiple lines, like of a, in, in a soliloquy sort of way. Um, so the, yeah, I think it would drive me crazy if I tried to <laughs> develop a habit of breathing. Although I guess you could sort of like maybe stutter breathe. And I guess it depends on if you've got this big, long sentence really that goes on for three or four lines you know maybe you you know you need to sort of find a brief pause and stutter breathe in the middle you know you can avail yourself of you know musical theater techniques for breath management there but the, it feels to me like if i pause even briefly for a breath at the end of every line then i'm introducing a pause right in in the speech that may not actually make sense it may make a single thought which is too complex to express in 10 syllables, you know, and thus stretches across two or more lines, suddenly break up and not make any sense. Like, <clears throat> I was actually working on this today, reviewing some of the lines on my way over, um, because I use a, an app to do it um, in an you know, a, a auditory way. Orally. <clears throat> Orally, thank you. Um, the, there's a scene in the, you know, there's a line in the player's the speech about Pyrrhus and Priam when I come out and I say, you know, hardly tricked in blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons. That's the end of the line. The next line is, which lends a tyrannous and damned light to their Lord's murder. But if you pause in the middle of that, well now, like, you've got these two kind of disconnected halves, and you're like, well, what, what, what's the tyrannous and damned thing? But if you say it straight through, you take a deep breath, right? Hardly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, that lends a tyrannous and damned light to their Lord's murder. Well, now the whole thing makes sense. So that's why I, I, I don't subscribe to that more that traditionalist point of breathing at the end of every line, I guess. I didn't really didn't, I wasn't even aware there was a, that, that it was a traditionalist thing. And, and now I've ruined your Shakespeare forever. <laughs> I just am here in a little bit of horror imagining. Four hours of ten syllables broken up by... Well, assumedly, you don't need to take that deep of a breath. I would never assume that about anyone. <laughs> I say assumedly because, though I am aware of it, um, you will notice I do not practice it. I'd actually like to repurpose a question that I asked Michelle. Just um, The way I asked it to her was sort of when you arrive at the theater and then you get in your makeup and your costume and you warm up and you do your props check, I asked her where... At what point in that process does she find Gertrude in her body? So at what point, even if it's 
it might just be your first line, but is there a point where you find that you start speaking like the first player as opposed to speaking like Roger? Huh. I'm not really sure I know exactly when that transition happens because in the time leading up, right, there's initially, you know, you get there, you get there wicked early because, you know, you're called early just in case anything happens and you're hanging out and you know, someone's playing music on their phone. So you got a little dance party going on or you're reading, you're sort of relaxing, kind of psyching yourself up to get ready. And then you put on your costume, you put on your makeup and you're still chatting. And at that point, I'm still not my character yet. And then something happens, you know, maybe Kat calls everyone together to, to give a little pep talk or you know, the stage manager or ASM says, you know, you know, end minutes to, to, to curtain or what have you. And then there's just something uh, that triggers a sudden realization that, okay, it's, it's time to get serious. And that's the moment I think, uh, you know, that the, where there were suddenly I'm aware and I'm focused and maybe I'm reviewing some lines, but then I'm mentally girding myself. I'm putting on my mental armor and getting into the right, into the right frame of mind. So I think that's the point where that happens. Man, now I just want to repurpose a question from my last solo episode. Yeah, I guess. So this is sort of an ongoing debate, but if the the cast of Hamlet were to get into a brawl, <laughs> yeah, who do you think would win, and why is the answer Anne? So <laughs> I will. It was funny because I listened to the episode, one of the episodes where you asked this question, and I turned to Cat, my wife, and I said. They clearly don't know how vicious you are. So, but because you specified that it's a member of the cast, yeah, thus was... excluding Cat. If it were cast and crew, Cat wins hands down, no matter what. Because she is a vicious ball of fury when you get her going. But in just the cast? I mean, if it was round two, since Cat's also an understudy, <laughs> she would be included in the right. second part. But I think uh, Julian... Because he's like nine feet tall and can hold anyone that attacks him at bay until they grow. To, although maybe Quentin would give him a run for his money because he likewise is very tall and, and long-armed and so on. Um, and basically he keeps people at bay and lets the other fighters tire themselves out and beat each, beat each other up. And then it comes down to, you know, Rob and Anne because, you know, they're the last two. And then one of them, maybe it's Rob, maybe it's Anne, I don't know, uh, takes each other out and then... At that point, they're so tired and exhausted, Julian just hauls off and, you know, clocks them with some weapon held at extreme length. Because, again, he's nine feet tall and has, you know, really long arms. And for those of you who don't know Julian, um, Roger's description is literally true. <laughs> but he left out that each solstice he becomes an oak tree. I thought you were about to say Santa Claus. <laughs> no. Those are the equinoxes. Anyhow. <laughs> okay, do you have... A favorite warm-up slash vocal exercise, and is it your favorite because it's very effective, or is it your favorite because it's fun? And why is it carnival? <laughs> That's not a vocal exercise, right? That's an no. energy focus exercise. That's mostly a lot of cursing. Right. Um, well, all the vocal sort of warm-up exercises that I know of are from musical theater, so they're all singing-oriented, right? So they're about... Uh, sort of clearing out any any blockage in the throat, and I have an, I had an instructor who always made me do these like high pitched nasally witchy kind of things, and uh, and so on. None of which were fun, but were very effective. So when we're I guess when we're warming up for this, I usually just end up kind of going through my lines and like hyper pronounce it like you know 
stretching out my lips and really like hyper exaggerating my pronunciation and being incredibly you know sharp with the diction and popping all the p's and the t's and so on just to kind of get to, to warm up the muscles of my face i don't know if that counts but i'll count it okay yeah yeah well we'll rule in favor following that do you have a favorite line could be yours it could be someone else's do you have a, a line from hamlet that just ah. oh there are so many good ones Make them fight. See who has the reach. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of partial to speak the speech. And it's really for a selfish reason. Because, A, that whole thing is normally Hamlet's soliloquy. But by virtue of the way we've cut things up, the players get pieces of that. And though I've never played Hamlet, some years ago I was in a play called I Hate Hamlet, uh, which... In which one of the main characters is the ghost of John Barrymore. So I'm, I'm playing ghosts related to Hamlet in multiple ways. And so John Barrymore was generally regarded as one of the best Hamlets on Broadway ever. And in this play, he comes back to haunt the apartment where he used to live and, and so on. And in that, in that play, he does, um, you know, kind of a mashup of the whole speak the speech thing. And so I got to deliver it as John Barrymore. And then I get to hear Quentin deliver it to me and then sort of, you know, you know, help him, you know, by virtue of the fact that I get some of the lines in there. So, so that sort of back and forth and having experienced that soliloquy multiple times, uh, I think makes me partial to it. There are a couple other good ones. Like, I love it when he breaks out with, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. That's, that's, that's a good one, too. We are almost out of time, okay. um, so I'm going to ask something possibly even more whimsical than who would win <laughs> in a fight, um, which just occurred to me while you were answering that question, which is... If everyone in the cast, so the 13 people cast, all had the voice of one person in the cast, whose voice would you give everyone? Oh, Julian's again. British accent for the win. Yes, our nine foot tall British oak tree. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be weird if we ever interview Julian. Which I hope we do. That or Jen's. Because, you know, Ophelia, you know, I just imagine the whole cast singing all their lines in Jen's singing voice, which is, which is flat out amazing. So those are, you know, I give you two choices. If we do Hamlet the musical, then it's, it's Jen's voice. If we do, you know, the straight version or the non-musical version, then it's Julian's. We can, um, we can sub in Julian's voice for the Patter song number in the musical. Do you have anything else you want to add? Anything else you want on the record before we close ourselves out? That sounded ominous. I meant for the episode. You know, it was funny when you sent me the email saying this was going to be about words, words, words. I was on my way over here. I was like, what kind of like clever and witty things can I say about about words and like about the language and like the fact that so much of what we, you know, so many of Shakespeare's you know, lines are famous to, are remembered today and no one remembers that he created them. And then I found myself thinking, well, did he create them? Or is it just that in his works for the first time they appeared, right? Because maybe they were common parlance, but no one ever wrote this stuff down back in the day. And then I thought, well, maybe if they were common parlance, they would show up in like Christopher Marlowe's work as well. And then I, I was on the verge of like going out and doing like a bunch of research on, 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 on these sorts of things, but I had to stop myself because I had to work. So as a lay uh, like amateur um, linguist there's so much wonderful stuff in all of this material which I think helps uh, really hook me in and give me an extra level of appreciation for it you should definitely do that research because I've read 
a delightful article that I'll, I'll try to find and send to you later that actually um, puts forward the idea that a lot of those phrases were common with teenage girls oh. at the time, the sort of most underrepresented sort of speech patterns and tastemakers in classical literature. And that's why they weren't in the other plays, because who writes down what teenage girls say? Right. You're going to close the episode on that scoop? I mean, I thought it was really cool. I'm not. I'm. I'm in earnest. We will have to link in the description for this episode that article. If yeah, you can find totally. It. I want to see it. Yeah. Cool. One minute to places. Thank, Thank you. you one. Should we do that again? No. <laughs> no. And thank you for listening to Thank You Places, hosted by us. us. Chris J. M. Maloney and Jacob C. McDonald. Our guest today was Roger Alex Gaudreau. Music written and produced by Forpas. Special thanks to the First Church in Marlboro for the use of their space for recording. For Bre- <laughs> two Brent Leibowitz. Not four Brent Leibowitz, but I guess four too, but that should have been on Michelle's episode. And to Jillman. Jillian and Ariel Zuckerman. Close enough. Close enough. This has been a production of Ghost Lights Players, Players. a non-profit, a non-profit theater troupe from Marlboro, Marlboro, Massachusetts. If you liked what you heard here, you'll, you'll love, love the, other things. the other things we make. Visit www.ghostlightplayers.com or find us on the newfangled social media at GLL Bye. Ciao. Exit stage. Adieu, adieu, remember me or whatever.